This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Back with us, I want to get right to him, is Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He is on the phone from there where he's been working at one of the ICU units at the hospital. Um, Dr. Lusbader, nice to have you here with us. I hope you're staying safe and sound. Tell us a little bit about where you are right now and some of the work that um, has been facing you in the last 24 hours. So uh, thank you again for having me, and I hope you guys are are all staying safe as well. Um, I was uh, rounding earlier at the hospital in uh, some of the ICUs with with the medical teams. And, you know, I think we have some uh, good news and less good news. The good news is that the case volume uh, is dropping. There are more discharges. I think the overall mood of the staff is more positive. Uh, still, obviously, in the midst of crisis and a number of patients on ventilators and uh, uh, with a high mortality once you are intubated. Um, but I think the spirit is very good, and I think there's a real commitment uh, of the uh, doctors and nurses and the scientists and some of the researchers to really figure out what's going on and try and come up with some solutions. Um, I think some of the less good news uh, are limitations. We're a little limited in the office in testing to try and diagnose someone who you know, uh, for example, clinically has uh, COVID-19. Point of care testing is very limited. And we also know that about 30% of of those patients uh, are false negatives. In other words, they have Mm -hmm. it, and you may have to test them once, twice. And we've even had a patient who needed a third nasal swab in order to make the diagnosis when it was obvious that's, that's what they had. And the reason you need to be sure is to enroll patients in studies. And that, as you know today in the news, exciting about Gilead, but I think some of that excitement is a little premature. You know, all of these uh, studies are really on limited number of patients. Um, Most of them are not uh, placebo-controlled trials or randomized placebo-controlled trials where you can really say, is this the right treatment to use? They're encouraging results, or they may drop their hospital stay by a day. Uh, They may drop their fevers earlier. So people are getting excited, but the reality is we don't have a consensus as to the best way to uh, treat patients with coronavirus, COVID-19. We can't determine which patients are going to do well in advance. So thankfully, most of them do well. And of the patients who deteriorate and then who need to come into the hospital, they're on randomized studies now because it's hard to know, and those studies can include the hydroxychloroquine with or without uh, uh, azithromycin, uh, something called IL-6 inhibitors, which decrease inflammation, remdesivir, which is an antiviral uh, similar to the uh, HIV drugs. It's an RNA, a nucleoside analog, uh, and that uh, Gilead is working on, and that had some excitement. But again, no controlled studies, and convalescent plasma, where you capture the antibodies and plasma of patients who've documented to recover, infuse that into sick patients. And there have been some studies out of China on that, and there are a few places in the United States that are also working on that. That also seems encouraging, but at this point, we don't really have a a huge consensus as to this is the best way to uh, treat someone. 
Well, I want to go back to, to something you said there at, at the top of the conversation, Ian, which is around, you know, sort of the mood of, of the healthcare workers, you know, in New York City, where where you are, I mean, this is the undisputed epicenter at, at this point. So what you're painting is, is it does give me, and I think a lot of our listeners, a, a little bit of hope. Talk to us about how they are feeling about PPE. How are they feeling about sort of having the the materials, uh, both protective and otherwise, that they need to deal with a, still a significant amount of patients coming in? Oh, for sure. No, no question. This is uh, not going away soon. And we certainly don't know if there will be a second wave or even a resurgence in the fall. Um, so typically, in, in the old days, when you'd see a patient with, say, tuberculosis or uh, a transmissible disease, all of your PPE was disposable. In other words, from your mask to your gloves to your gowns. Now, uh, some of that is rationed. Gowns get disposed. Uh, masks, uh, the N95 masks, have to be fit tested to make sure there are no leaks. Uh, a leak would not serve you well. And uh, patients generally, or rather doctors, are usually given one uh, per day, not one per patient. Mm -hmm. So you do have to be careful with it. You do have to, uh, usually people put a mask over the mask, a disposable surgical mask, where we have more of those. So there is PPE, uh, but it's not, uh, it's being conserved. Let's put it that way. Ian, I want to go back to what you said. I mean, does the majority of our population need to be tested in order for us to really get a handle on this virus and, and to ultimately understand what works and what doesn't? Great question, and the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, we really, and healthcare workers, so it's going to be impossible in the New York area to send everyone to their local lab, 10 million people, uh, and get antibody tests, although ideally that should be done. But that would really overwhelm the system. Um, but certainly, uh, healthcare workers, there are doctors who would love to know uh, whether or not they have antibodies, although I must say we are not 100% sure having antibodies will protect you uh, because there are some mutations and there are, have been some studies where people clear the virus theoretically cured, and then at a later point are tested and have virus in their, you know, nasopharynx. So that's mm -hmm. a little ambiguous. But there are many physicians who work up close, ENT doctors, dentists, um, uh, gastroenterologists, you know, and the list goes on and on, yeah. who, who think they've been sick. Uh, maybe they had a mild virus. Maybe they had COVID either from a patient or something else. And if they had antibodies, would feel much more comfortable right. going back to work. And All right. Uh, stick with us uh, if you can, uh, Dr. Les Bader. We're going to continue this conversation uh, in just a minute. Dr. Ian Les Bader, he is on the front lines uh, making his rounds at the ICU this weekend at the NYU Langone Medical Center. We're going to continue that conversation in just a minute. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser, here on Bloomberg. Dr. Ian Lusbader is still with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He is covering the ICU at the hospital as we speak. He's there and he's on the phone. Um, Ian, thanks so much for sticking around with us. Um, talk to us because I think what we're hearing increasingly from governors, uh, from everyone, is about how do we reopen and the criteria um, that has to be met to be able to um, reopen cities and states. How do you see it? What, what does the other side look like to you? 
So uh, you're exactly right that testing is really uh, key in this situation, and we don't really have that. Uh, optimally, you'd want to bring people back, such as healthcare workers who have that uh, IgG positive, showing antibodies to COVID. They think they had a mild infection or a more severe infection, and presumably they are now safe. The problem is testing a large number of people. And how accurate is it? As we've said before, 30% of nasal swabs uh, are false negatives. We have patients who uh, have COVID clinically, and it takes two or three swabs. So this is really uncharted territory. We've never really had a pandemic like this in the United States in recent memory. We've never locked down uh, states and returned people. So we really don't know uh, the exact safest way to do this, and there's always some risk. Um, but at the end of the day, I think people do need to return for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, financial and mental health. And uh, my sense would be the most vulnerable people. And we know, we know that population, diabetes, hypertension, underlying disease, uh, obesity. Uh, there are a number of uh, conditions that seem to make the outcomes worse, although we do still see young people uh, who get into trouble. Those should remain on isolation until they can be tested. The reality is a vaccine is probably a year away. You cannot keep 10 million people in the tri-state area or in, in, the, in the greater New York area at home uh, for a year until a vaccine comes out. So there has to be some way uh, of developing a, a return right. uh, before you can get herd immunity. And that's ultimately what we want is enough people either to have the disease in a mild form or vaccinated so everyone can safely return. But as Fauci says, there are people will have to wear masks and do some social distancing until that uh, is achieved. Right. Well, so, Ian, let's talk about that, you know, a little bit further under the auspices of you're there in New York City. We work in, in New York City. We know the physical plant that is Manhattan, especially what is a and I'm asking you to purely sort of speculate here, but what is a New York City on the other side of this where social distancing and all of those things need to be in place for some measure of time? What does it look like and, and feel like what what's the advice you would give to people in terms of moving around, trying to, you know, kind of live something akin to a normal life? Since we know about 90% or so of people generally uh, do reasonably well with this, they have mild to moderate disease, a relatively small percent come to the uh, emergency room and another smaller percent get intubated. Unfortunately, once you're intubated, a higher percent do not do well for a variety of reasons, and we need to figure out a better treatment uh, with those randomized control studies that we talked about, hydroxychloroquine, IL-6 inhibitors, remdesivir, uh, convalescent plasma. I think everyone will feel better when we have data about what really works. And at this point, we have a lot of anecdotal uh, evidence on a small number of patients. In the next few months, we should be getting much uh, the results of much bigger trials. But as people return, I think masks and gloves in the subway are reasonable. It's very hard to keep six feet apart, as, as one can imagine. Um, and there will be some risk. And I think people who are ill and can't take that risk uh, probably should not go back, and we'll have to figure out how to accommodate them. But the majority of people should be able to uh, go back, but testing would be helpful. We still, as an outpatient, 
cannot have someone come in who's symptomatic, uh, do a spit saliva test and get a result back. Hopefully that will come soon. We So patients come in, you know they have the disease. Uh, you can't test them. And we really can't offer them a good treatment. Yeah. So I think when we get those two blocks in, I, I can tell you that you have it and not just tell you you have the symptoms of it. And I can tell you this works most of the time. I think people will be concerned. But I don't think either of that data is coming very soon. It'll probably be a few months. Uh, And that's probably the trajectory that people will safely return to work. All right. Listen, thank you so much. And I know this was a hectic day for you and and you stepped away. So we really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Ian Lusbader, stay safe, be well. Uh, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. On the phone from there, he's been working at the ICU units uh, as we speak. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Someone's had a lot of experience covering the global economy. Jason is our own Tom Orlick. Can't get enough of this guy, and I was so excited to, to get a chance. I am so excited to get a chance to uh, to talk to him because China remains just the big story. And, of course, Tom Orlick is Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist. He joins us on the phone uh, from Washington. All right, Tom, so we woke up this morning. We saw some of it, actually, as we were going to bed uh, last night. Things happening in China. This is a momentous moment, right? I think it's it's really unprecedented, Jason. Uh, we have a 6.8 contraction uh, in China's GDP in the first quarter of the year. Um, and, of course, that's against the backdrop Uh, of an economy which typically is expanding around 6% a year. Uh, So really an extraordinary drop in China's growth um, and sort of a vivid illustration of the magnitude of the impact which lockdown of the lockdowns, which of course we now have not just in China, but in the US, in Europe, around the world are having on output. Well, and Tom, this is a nation that thrives and grows on demand from the rest of the world. And right now, they really have to rely on local demand, right, to kind of bring about a recovery. That's right, Carol. Um, so, I mean, if we dig into the details of the Chinese uh, Chinese data, what we see is actually they came back quite strongly at the end of the quarter. February was terrible, massive contraction. March, they, they, they regained a lot of the lost ground. So there was an optimistic sort of note there. Um, but thinking into the second quarter, the point you make, Carol, about the rest of the world and what's happening here in the US and in Europe, it's really going to come into play. Who is China going to export to when the US is contracting, when Europe is contracting, when all of these other emerging markets are in trouble? Um, and so for that reason, even as the lockdown eases in China, uh, we don't expect um, a, a, an aggressive recovery. And so, Tom, uh, some historical context it, it feels like is important here, both recent and, and maybe not so recent. From a recent perspective, you know, this is a country that, that was already, especially given uh, or in the context of its relationship with the United States, already in, in a little bit of a difficult uh, position, clearly a superpower, but one that ha- has been in a state, I don't know if I would go so far as to say existential crisis, but but at least sort of searching for itself in some ways. This has has really thrown so much into question. What does it tell us about the the economic might going forward of China? I think that's a really critical question, Jason. Uh, and for me, the, the interesting thing is to think about 
how we've had the trade war, which really sort of highlighted the, the split between China and the US, um, now immediately followed by this pandemic, um, which of course illustrates how governments need to work together to fight against global risks like disease outbreaks and climate change. Um, but unfortunately, has also illustrated the potential for that conflicting, conflicting relationship with governments squabbling over who gets access to medical resources, who shares what data, um, and so on. Um, so I think that the, the pandemic following hard on the heels of the trade war is really going to be another factor um, which drives slow, slowing in globalization or even deglobalization as governments become more self-reliant, as governments get more suspicious uh, of each other and of companies and supply chains which cross borders. So it's broken, Tom, the relationship between the U.S. and China, between trade, between the virus, or at least between these current administrations. It's broken. So I think there's certainly something to be said for the idea that the current administration in the United States um, and the current administration in China are part of uh, are important factors at work. Um, the guy we've got in the White House, the guy we've got in Zhongnanhai, China's leadership compound, um, they've got very distinctive kind of muscular, nationally oriented views of the world. Um, and I don't think that's really helping um, the bilateral relationship. At the same time, here we have these two major powers, a democracy, a single party state, a free market economy, a state-dominated economy. There's a lot that they can disagree about, and the trade war and now the pandemic have really brought those disagreements to the surface. I think even after the outbreak is over, we're going to see that challenging relationship remaining very challenging, uh, and that's going to be, frankly, an overhang on global growth going forward, not just for the next few months, but for the foreseeable future. Well, and that's such an important point here, uh, Tom, that you know this isn't just about these two countries. Only about 30 seconds left. What does it mean for the rest of the world? If you're sitting outside of these superpowers, either in Asia or in Latin America or certainly in Europe or maybe even in Africa, how does it change your playbook? Just got a, a, a minute here, 30 seconds. So, um, I mean, the first problem that all of these countries face is their, is their domestic outbreaks. They need to get those under right. control. Even when that happens, though, they're not going to be able to look to China as a powerful driver of growth or the open trade system as a sort of a force for lifting them out of uh, lifting them and driving development. Yeah, uh, it's such a great point, man. Uh, Muscular hold, interpretation we, of the world. Is that what I, he said before? He I said, love. I'm going to go back and listen to it because that was that the most was, eloquent yes. description of President Xi and President Trump that I've oh, ever heard. And uh, explains so much. Yeah, it explains a ton. All right, Tom Orlick, what a treat. Yeah. Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. It's just favorite on favorite here in the 3 o'clock hour of Bloomberg Business Week. <laughs> we turn now to Max Abelson. Bloomberg News finance reporter, when I saw this scoop uh, late yesterday, uh, I was just blown away. And not surprisingly, Max's name was on it. Cantor Fitzgerald, hundreds of job cuts in a break from Wall Street. That's the headline. Max joins us on the phone to tell us what's going on. As Carol Masser would say, Max, whoa, this is a big <laughs> it's a story. a story. Wow. 
I am so glad that you like it, and it's so nice to be with you guys and feel connected huh? to you two, despite uh, all this separateness. Yeah, you doing okay, Max? I am. I'm hanging in there and writing fun stories, thanks to uh, Sridhar Natarajan and Jillian Tan, who I teamed up with for this one. You know, basically, I think it's probably fair to say over the last few weeks, what we've heard from Wall Street is this pretty unified voice saying, like, look, we are not going to let people go during, you know, basically, first of all, a public health crisis, and also be clearly the worst unemploy- uh, unemployment catastrophe in, in decades, if not, I think, ever. And Cantor Fitzgerald, the, you know, which has obviously survived this horrible devastation after 9-11, and then Howard Lutnick rebuilt it. Now Cantor Fitzgerald is going to lay up hundreds of people. We, uh, we, we exclusively reported late last night. Why? What, why are they making this move when others are just battening down the hatches here, Max? Well, you know, I think that one of the reasons that this piece of news was big is that it's about um, Lutnick, you know, trying to shore up his empire. Um, mm. You know, we spoke to a lot of people. And, you know, so, so if, you, if you take a step back, you know, what you see is, first of all, just the, the deepest uh, reductions at a Wall Street bank that we've seen since uh, this, this outbreak began. But you're also seeing something a, a little bit bigger than that inside of uh, Howard Lutnick's world, which, don't, don't forget, includes we have Canterbury Gerald on the one hand, but another thing that, that Shri and Jillian and I reported on is BGC Partners, which is an affiliate firm. Their shares just absolutely collapsed uh, in the last few weeks because they announced that they were slashing their dividend, I think, to like a penny or something like that. And probably more importantly, that they were drawing down hundreds of millions of dollars from, from their revolving credit facility that, that, that's uh, in the last few months. And then, of course, there, there's also Newmark Knight Frank. I don't know if you folks know that name. That's a commercial real estate firm. Yeah. People there are being asked to take pay cuts. So the reality is it's a big news story because it's, it's bigger than just Cantor. It's sort of this whole Lutnick, uh, this Lutnick empire. So would this have happened maybe under a longer time frame, even without the virus? Were there problems already brewing, or is it really just because of the virus? Well, one reason that I love working with Sridhar, uh, who you both know, our, our Goldman Sachs beat reporter, but of course uh, he does terrific work across Wall Street. That guy called me up this morning. I think literally, I want to say maybe 7.30 a.m. I was, I was still in bed. You know, we, we, we published our story last night. And this morning he woke me up because he said he wanted to update the story with a detail that touched on exactly that. And the detail there, Carol, is that you know, the, they're, they're, you, you often see job cuts on Wall Street like this, um, you know, earlier in the year. You know, there's that ebb and flow of sort of layoffs on Wall Street. But that tends to happen before bonuses are given. So th- that's, that's a reason to think that this is sort of out of the ordinary, not part of the normal ebb and flow that, that we would have normally expected to be early in the year. That, that's our thinking on that. And so, uh, Max, only got about a minute and a half or so left, but that should give you time to answer this massive question I'm about to ask you. (laughs) How do you think Wall Street will be changed, even in the short to midterm, uh, by this? Because you you guys do such a nice job putting this in the context of everything else that's been happening, but there is something afoot here, and I wonder if you're starting to get your head around it. Well, I'm glad we only have 90 seconds of that, Jason. It's a very, very important and wonderful question. Christine Harper at Markets Magazine and I are, are trying to think about that for Project Long Term. But, but look, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. You know, what we're facing in the United States, obviously, on the one hand, is a public health crisis, which is devastating and lethal and very scary. On the other hand, we're facing what could be, uh, you know, some sort of long-term financial crisis or recession. But then, you know, on Wall Street, I think it's probably also fair to say that we're seeing this sort of a different kind of almost like an existential crisis, where on the one hand, as I reported a few weeks ago, and I think talked to you folks about 
you know, the, the sort of Wall Street culture of aggressiveness, mm. we saw really clashing with the needs of public health. And we saw people piling into trading floors because there were billions of dollars to be made. Michelle Davis and I reported on that. Shree and I reported about fevers on the, Wal- on the yeah. Goldman Sachs trading floor. Yeah. And I think there's a real question, you know, will we see a different kind of Wall Street culture to emerge from this? One that has people working from home more often. One that has this sort of much, much, much less of the sort of the macho undertones and even overtones. Right. I think that it would be crazy of me to try to make a guess. But all I can tell you is Shri and, uh, and, and the folks on the finance team, and including editors like Christine Harper, are going to keep our eyes open and really yeah. try to report hard on that over the next uh, months and, and years. I got to say that fear versus greed theme is something that Jason and I have been talking about constantly since it totally. hit the Bloomberg terminal because yeah. it's just so relevant to today's environment. All right, Max Abelson, you are literally the best. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Uh, get some rest. Uh, just doing some unbelievable work. And uh, he was cited uh, with with some of his team as, as just doing standout, standout work uh, across the whole New York bureau uh, last week. So uh, and just delivering uh, another He's got nice great energy. He's overnight. just yeah. love yeah. it, love it, love it. I mean, it. and I, he gets people to talk to him in just this amazing way. It, it's marvelous to watch. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.